0: Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.
1: My name is Dave Hanrady, and there will be no Encore. Welcome to episode 263 of the No Encore Music Podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network. The show is complete once again. Craig Fitzpatrick is in front of me via Zoom. I'm back, baby. <laughs> Hello. I'd like to say I'm
2: fully recharged. Shout out of a cannon, but I think that kind of energy was gone maybe by Tuesday afternoon. But I am at like, you're getting like 80% Craig, which is a lot better than normal, so...
1: We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. We lost it. I know, straight away. It was amazing. <laughs> we I'm are back. Returning I'm back. It happened returning It happened straight away. We can include, you can keep this audio in. I'm fine with it. But like, as soon as I threw to you, Craig, technical difficulties struck. And it was the classic thing of like frozen, frozen faces on the screen and then that kind of weird Matrix code-in noise. So I'm just like, all right, yeah. Every time that... No, that's what I was saying. That was... <laughs> you could have been saying anything. You could have been saying was all absolutely me, like the most offensive, insulting stuff. And I have no idea. I'll be hearing it with the listeners. So welcome back. I, I presume your week was was fruitful and enjoyable. Can you guess what I said? I, okay, I w- <laughs> what would be a classic Craig thing to that say? That you moved from one show? room of the house to the other, uh, hung out with the cats, watched a bit of the OC, that kind of stuff. I can't imagine that there was much more than that. I went for like a long walk.
2: I, I didn't really, I didn't really go into details because I, I, I mostly spent the week dreading the prospect of people asking me how I spent the week is like classic lockdown but no I just did like your classic self-deprecation said I'm I'm not quite fully recharged I'm about 80% but that's about as good as you're going to get
1: well I've got three bars of battery (laughs) you've got three bars of battery nice (laughs) they call him a hundred percent Dave on this episode it's a top five duets best and worst fitting for our reunition. Reunition. i'm just making up fucking words now reunification sounded too formal like it was two yeah, countries just, finally coming like back like we're two yeah, nations exactly, yeah.
2: that have had a h- h- horrendous war reunion yeah. i believe our friendship's kind of been like a a decade long
1: spoken word duet maybe it? it is coming up on a decade now cuz i would have gone to Press. Hop- yeah i went to Hop Press at the end of college 2011. 2011. So, like, when did it? Is that May? So, we're coming up on it. It's been almost 10 years of. I think it was July. Yeah, yeah. I think it was July. When I made my return. Yeah, it was, yeah, you came back to the office and that's when we became friends. Maybe we need to do something. Something has to mark this. This, this very in, insular, inside joke, 10 year friendship that we have. But yeah, that's fucked, man. A, an entire. Decade. But um, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's fitting, because uh, someone who played a big part in the hot press office back in the day at one stage was Lana Del Rey. She didn't work there or anything, but she was certainly the topic of conversation when she broke through. She was, And on this episode, she will be the topic of conversation for our album review, because she's back with a brand new one. So Top 5 Duets, Best and Worst, Lana Del Rey Album Review, later to come in the show. And it's at this point that we do our usual Patreon plug. But don't skip ahead, because next week is going to be a busy week for the show. And people who have subscribed to our Patreon, on patreon.com slash noencore, where you can get bonus episodes, will be delighted to know that the third episode of No Ox Chord, our Music Recommends Corner it's a very chilled out, fun kind of green tea infused hour that we record yeah. on the weekend, specifically in the morning, nice and early. And we'll be doing that this weekend to come out on Monday. I'm looking forward to it, man. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. It's, it's very casual so vibes. Yeah,
2: I've got my tracksuit bottoms ironed and ready to go. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's all you know. The apparel is like the attire, you know, the all all the accoutrements and lots of music recommends. It's fun. It's enjoyable, and it can be yours at Patreon.com/slash No Also coming out next week (laughs) on the main feed, uh, delighted to once again (laughs) head into the world, enter into the realm of the track-by-track album Breakdown, and this time Mm. around... I have recorded an interview, a nice lengthy chat with Mihal Quinn, an incredible musician, incredible guy. If you don't know who Mihal is, shame on you, but I'll tell you, he's a multi instrumentalist. He's played drums with the likes of Enemies, Melty Brains, and is the current incredible drummer for Dermot Kennedy. If you've ever been to one of his shows and seen Mihal behind the kit, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He has just released a debut solo album, an electronica work called Colors. Go and check that out immediately after the show, of course. But next Wednesday, on this very show we'll be sitting down with me all in conversation for a track by track and here is a little snippet
0: do you know what actually I was uh, we did a gig that night or the ne- the following night we had to do a gig in Wichita i think yeah Wichita in Kansas and um that gig was very tough but i remember talking to some random man after it and um he just thought it was brilliant and he really enjoyed it. And I explained where I was at. So i like, sorry, I can't really talk right now. I'm, I'm pretty upset. And um, I explained my auntie had passed away and he was like, no shit. He was like, well, I can tell you she was there tonight. And it, whether she was or not, I don't know. But I wrote it down in a little book. And um, I don't know. Yeah, it was. It was, And I, I've kind of carried that ever since, which is why I'm OK talking about it, because I, I, I carry her very close. And I am. Um, she's been on all of it with me anyway so I'm quite happy to tell people about her I want people to know about her because she encouraged me so much as a kid she thought being a musician was really cool and and bands were like a really cool thing and they were valuable and worthwhile and it was really deeply ingrained in me that like, oh yeah, being in a band isn't like being a waster or anything like that it's a very important thing to do Um, so I, I, I like to just it's as if i'm saying back to her like hey i you're just as valuable or or uh I don't know, yeah, yeah. I just really love her, I guess, and I want her to be part of things. It's one
1: of many stories that we heard from Michal on that episode. Another great one. I enjoy doing these. If you're unfamiliar, it's basically like, go through the album with with the artist and talk about everything. Talk about the stories behind the songs, talk about anything that comes to mind. And with Michal, there was so much to talk about. He's an absolute gentleman, really interesting guy. And that is out next week. Like I say on Monday, no oxcord for patrons, patreon.com slash noancore. So three episodes next week. Enjoy them. But as for this one, Craig... Let's jump into the news. Hey, you heard about the good news? All right, like uh, Neville Chamberlain before Love me. It. Was it Neville Chamberlain the peace in our time thing? I always wonder. You yeah, it was, yeah. Well, Got that one wrong, didn't you, Neville? You sure fucking did. But I'm here to declare peace in modern times. Real quick update to a story we talked about previously. Taylor Swift and Utah Amusement Park Evermore have ended their legal battle and dropped their lawsuits against each other. That's according to a report in Billboard this week. Beautiful. There was a very, very generic quote from Taylor Swift's spokesperson just saying that there will not be any further action on this. No real reason why. I mean, I don't know if it's an out-of-court settlement or if everything, if they just made friends. But ultimately, we can move past it now. I'm very excited It's all good. Maybe they just realized it was kind of
2: boring for everyone. Just like, you know, dueling lawsuits about a weird amusement park that like, if your amusement park aesthetic is the latest era of Taylor Swift, not that amusing, I'm going to say. It's not like it was Grimes that was nicking off them, you know? So yeah,
1: glad that's wrapped up. Me too, man. I mean, ultimately, it's 2021. There's enough to worry about. But if you're looking for a distraction, well, you know, we just might have it. Who remembers Meatloaf? Remember Meatloaf Kids? 1993 was a big year for him. With that amazing song, I Do Anything For Love. Open brackets, but I won't do that. Close brackets. <laughs> uh, a video directed by Michael Bay. What was that? What was what? The song. Did we ever figure out the thing he wouldn't do? Um, is so not like the big,
2: you know, just conspiracy theories about it? And It's like You're So Vain by Carly Simon where it's like, oh, is it about Warren
1: Beatty? I presume it's... Did he mean Warren Beatty? I don't know. I presume it's Vote Democrat because he's a big Trump guy so it it could very well have been that but why are we talking about Meatloaf 28 years later it's because that song in particular which was a chart topper it was a it was often played in my own house I think my parents loved it for some reason I think they bought it on CD and my parents weren't into music so he got through Um, Mm. the song is being turned into a reality TV show a competition as a matter of fact a brand new series Uh, Meatloaf himself will serve as executive producer and essentially it's a show in which couples will compete in a variety of comedic physical games designed to reveal how well they can work together and how much they really trust and believe in one another, all to a soundtrack of classic hits performed live in the studio by the original artists as well as new stars. So we're, we're being promised, quote, absurd and sometimes frightening physical contests inspired and accompanied by ballads. Does this sound like something that you would watch, Craig? Meatloaf Attachment or not?
2: I'm kind of intrigued by the artist performing. I kind of like the juxtaposition of the cheesy ballads with frightening physical contests gives me pause i'm slightly concerned about that but um i will i will maybe check out a couple of clips it's clearly and blatantly the kind of show where they had the title they went to meatloaf and like can we use this title and then they just figured out the rest of it probably on a napkin um during a liquid lunch um, over the course of an hour, I'd say. Hey, that's how
1: J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter. Don't know if alcohol was involved, but I believe it was written <laughs> one lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it was written on several napkins. And hey, she turned out to be a massive bigot. So good for her. Um, in other kind of shocking news, did you see this Cardi B thing? Very Jay Leno of me. Yeah. Seen this? Cardi B, who's not a massive bigot and she's not Hitler. Yeah. despite what
2: skillet frontman john cooper might say Now,
1: skillet are an act i've never heard of before they appear to be uh, an american conservative christian rock act but this guy john cooper has clarified his recent remarks in which he compared wap wap, WAP? have we settled on a pronunciation for this does it matter we settled on wap because yeah we did a whole bit where i was going is the wap
2: and it was at a point where everyone was saying wap and i i came off looking quite foolish
1: Okay, well, someone else who looks quite foolish is in fact John Cooper after he compared the Grammys performance with Cardi B and Megan The Stallion of WAP to speeches by Adolf Hitler. Now, I mean, I, I kind of feel like in this day and age, Craig, you know, you can say things and people can get all hot and bothered, but there are some lines you just don't cross. And I think comparing a sexual music performance to the work of the worst human being of all time is... It's a bit (laughs) the work of his uh, his back catalogue. Well, apparently it's his early work. It's his early speeches. The whole thing centres on the fact that um, apparently he was saying that this sexually charged performance is an example of the woke public mistaking evil for good. uh, Using Hitler's propaganda speeches as a historical example, saying that, quote, every dictator in history says that what they were doing was good and that people are forced to applaud the sexual degradation of Cardi B's performance. So he um, did a climb down Uh, This was on his podcast as well. He did a climb down and said, it has come to my attention that some of my words were misrepresented and taken out of context. So please allow me to say I did not compare Cardi B to Hitler, did not compare her performance to him or any other dictator. And I certainly didn't compare the Grammys or the music industry or any other artist for any reason to any dictator. Uh, He tries (laughs) to, you know, say that I would never conflate the horrors of genocide to, you know, this, that and the other. But he keeps trying to double down on it. And I think ultimately, if you find yourself in a position where you have to say out loud... I wasn't comparing that musical performance to Hitler, when you did, by the way. You're kind of... But also in his, yeah,
2: in his explanation, he kind of says, I wasn't talking about Hitler, but I was talking about like um, confusing good for evil. So he's still calling the performance inherently evil. (laughs) You know what I mean? Just because he invokes Hitler doesn't change the message. Um, So yeah, some kind of weird Christian rock dude. I will just say... I'm a bit sad that we can no longer invoke Hitler as they're like really extreme comparison points. That was always kind of like a, an easy reach, wasn't it, for an argument? Just like bloody Hitler. And now that's off the table as well.
1: I kind of feel like ultimately this is one that we can we can let go, you know? I mean I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's not the hill I'm gonna die. I think on, everything but... yeah, everything is contextual. And I I think ultimately, you know, something like this. And like like I I think WAP is not a great song. It's clearly a very good zeitgeist moment in Fair Play, but like, as a song... But it's not like wet-ass propaganda, for example. Good lord. Okay. Why don't you take up the rest of the news section? And, and, and I should stress at this point, by the way, that we're completely on Cardi B's side. This guy's a fucking idiot. But... Uh, 100%, yeah. I wonder yeah, yeah. yeah, ludicrous. He might have a point about the actual institution of the Grammys...
2: Um Slightly dictatorship-like, maybe, possibly. Yeah. But yeah, it's the wrong card to yeah, be tear it down.
1: Um, but, you know, I mean, like, he wouldn't be the first rock star out there to do something outlandish, you know? And even in death, some rock stars can do crazy things. Like Lemmy from Motorhead, who died six years ago, I believe. Five or six years ago at this stage. Yes. Apparently, it's come out. It's come out before, but it's been kind of reiterated this week that um, his ashes were put into bullets with Lemmy written on them. And have been sent out to individuals. Now, I should say when I say sent out to individuals, this isn't like <laughs> this isn't like not as a trap. Yeah, exactly. This isn't like that. For beyond the seen in the Insider, when Russell Crowe goes out to his mailbox and there's a bullet in there. This is more like <laughs> been sent to like trusted individuals and friends. Uh, uh, there was a thing a few months ago where like the tennis player Pat Cash put up an Instagram post of him with one of these bullets, and I was like. Pat Cash got one what the fuck turns out it wasn't I his know. it was the singer from Ugly Kid Joe who he was having a drink with and I'm like yeah that makes a bit more sense but um, yeah there the, was someone who hosted the Headbangers Ball on MTV back in the day Ricky Rockman, put some respect on his name I don't know who this I've i don't know who heard they, of they, like, him either. No. I'm would <laughs> you believe that of all things I never watched Headbangers Ball I was just like I don't know I think it might have been before my time it's kind of before our time right a little bit yeah I mean it's definitely very early 90s alt MTV but he put up a thing uh, this week a photograph of one of the bullets and said that he received it on that day and was literally brought to tears. And I'm like, you received it only then? He died five years ago. What kind of process is this? at me It could be that. <laughs> Just the delivery
2: service is all over the place. Do you want to give us a quick update um, yeah. about, your, um, imagine,
1: about your. Imagine being. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Your jazz vinyl. I know you're very sad about that and people have been waiting. <laughs>
2: I was talking to yourself on an Adam pre-show about the situation and the situation is that there is no longer a situation. I've been sadly refunded because um, DPD, do not use them whatsoever, sent back the vinyl <laughs> to... Um, store in the UK, and it was damaged. They were like, in good conscience, we can't send this back out to you because vinyl's ruined. So, congratulations to the sorting center in that loan who like lost the package for about two months, didn't respond to any of my queries, and then sent it back to the UK, damaged. Great job, guys. Great job. No jazz vinyl for Craig. Maybe they'll send you one of these
1: bullets by way of compensation or something. Would you want
2: one? <laughs> Are you a little bit pleased that I don't have like seven new jazz albums to talk about on the Hawkscord for the next three, three, four
1: months? Nah, please is the wrong word. That'd be <laughs> cruel. I think ultimately, as someone who has has become totally addicted to vinyl, as we know, to the point where I, I, I have several more arriving this week, um, no, like... I I understand the rush of getting them in the post and the annoyance when... But you, you have the worst luck. Like, like by comparison to me, it's usually fairly, fairly quick and clean, you know? No major delays. But if you try and get anything, Frank Ocean, Jay Paul, Strange Vinyl, it's just not happening.
2: Yeah, yeah, maybe it's a sign. I don't know. Maybe I need to move on and start buying mini-discs or yeah, something? Yeah, definitely, yeah, I think so. Um, if you... <laughs> would you be up for this bullet thing? Uh, after you pass do you think it's a cool idea because i like the way he thought it through there is something very nice about it but he probably doesn't didn't envisage like pat cash would end up handling him, that would upset me which is always a risk yeah. and
1: then of course you have the thing of like what if they're like the bad guys from the crow and they to show you how tough they are they do tequila shots and take the bullet into their mouth with it i'm like is that gonna happen um yeah i just feel like you know it's maybe when i was a teenager i would have thought this was cool and edgy and stuff but like at the same time, it would be very strange if I was still around the earth in the form of a bullet, having never held a gun in my life. I mean, like why? maybe a piece of
2: vinyl. You can do that now. You can get Ashes turned into a vinyl record. Really? Yeah, you can go online. There's a proper service. It's a legit thing. I'm not sure how good the quality is. Probably not great. You probably don't want to play it too much. How but about, yeah, you can do it. Yeah,
1: how about I'll do that, right? And you can order it. And it will arrive approximately twenty-four months after you do so. But it'll be retouching really when it does. So uh, it'll be good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, it arrive. Damage, just the question. Uh, well, listen, it's me, so I, I already oh, yeah. am, pal. But yeah, so here's the thing, right? Um, Sting is our is our big inspiration. <laughs> Craig, Craig was taking a drink of water and lost it. I love it because I went full. Oh my full god! Full timing. Time. Here's the thing, Sting. <laughs> Did you see? Uh, Higgs told me this. I had to look it up. Did you see? Jack Wilshire was a pundit recently on some football match, and it was there was like a penalty claim, and they went to Jack Wilshire and asked him what he thought, and he said, "For me, not for me."
2: I was just like, so good. <laughs> That's kind
1: of profound somehow. Yeah, isn't it's incredible. It? <laughs>
2: like. Something kind of like, yeah, it's like a Beckett
1: play or, or like something. Like Jackson Pollock yeah, he just found the genius in the madness. But uh, someone who has often found genius in madness, I'm determined to link this and I'm going to keep doing it. Sting, our top five inspiration this week, who's just put out a duets album, has been speaking up, you know, your standard kind of promotional interview, I suppose. And he said that he regrets reforming The Police back in 2007, calling it, quote, an exercise in nostalgia. No shit, pal. A reunion tour. (laughs) A reunification tour with the police. Uh, The 69-year-old singer embarked on a world tour in 2018 after he reunited with bandmates Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland. Maybe it was 2017. Maybe I got my numbers wrong here. But, um... He just said, at the time I labeled the tour an exercise and nostalgia. It was simply how I felt and it's still how I feel today. I think it's okay to be honest about your feelings and that it was that that's the way it went for me. That's nice growth. Uh, Not a slight on the people I was with or the way that things panned out. It's just how I saw it by the end. And let's be honest, that's not how I wanted to remember it. If I thought if I thought that that would be the emotion I'd be leaving with, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. So, I mean, it's easy to say that now. After you've done the... F-
2: After he's cashed all his checks. Whole money grab, from it. Yeah. yeah. So... I do like the fact he was um, speaking to Reader's Digest, which is, like, most definitely an exercise in nostalgia. <laughs> Reader's Digest is still going. And, of course, they're talking to Sting. I guess he was a cover star. Um, I'd he was. That issue. That still come in, like, but you remember for
1: him. I hope it does.
2: I'd say so. I, I got a load of those... Um, from, like, my granddad <laughs> back in my teens. I remember reading a few of them. Uh, they're probably still in an attic somewhere. There you go. But That'll yeah, keep they were going like instead of the vinyl, p- you know?
1: Just uh, <laughs> crack into an old R.D. Or- <laughs> <laughs> Do
2: you remember that um, reunion tour, though? No. Do you remember, like, the first night or, like, one of the first shows... Um, Stuart Copeland took to his blog and started doing like reviews of every show, but like as a proper music critic, and was just like <laughs> slamming the gigs. He was like, "We're horrendous." I don't know why people came to the show. And he starts talking about Sting, like he was like, calling him like a a preening front man and just laying into him, like
1: opening <laughs> night. It's incredible. I did not know. So those.
2: I'm I'm surprised. <laughs> um, Sting has such kind of regrets, not at all. This is
1: brilliant. Like that's actually something that everyone should do. There should be a a designated member of the band whose job it is to keep a blog and just go all in night after night after night. Would have put us out of business, though. Uh, I mean, I mean, business could be booming, you know, a bit more. Patreon.com slash no encore yeah. if you want to help us out. But, uh, I don't know, like, Stuart opens probably good at it, but he's not us, Craig, you know. He couldn't, for example, review another Lana Del Rey album if it came out in the first of June which is apparently what is happening we will be talking oh, we're about we doing that are we <laughs> I don't know I mean like, we'll, we'll see how this one goes because she has just released Chemtrails Over the Country Club which we'll be reviewing in approximately two or three minutes but she's already announced a follow up album called Rock Candy Sweet, which as I note comes out at the start of June and she is taking aim at the critics on this one Craig very exciting yeah um so along with the announcement she responded
2: to a Harper's Bazaar article um probably within her rights to respond because the article was called Lana Del Rey Can't uh, Qualify Her Way Out of Being Held Accountable. (laughs) Haven't read the article, but she said, um, just want to say thank you again for the kind articles like this one and for reminding me that my career was built on cultural appropriation and glamorising domestic abuse. I will continue to challenge those thoughts on my next record, tune first, titled Rock Candy Sweet. What an announcement. (laughs) Um... I wonder is there actually an album or is it just like a really good mic drop? Um, I don't know. It's interesting. It's a pretty good mic drop. She's Yeah, it's not bad. I mean like she's getting used to having to come out with these kind of statements because there's been a lot of controversies around her of late the whole kind of mesh mask I guess we'll talk about it all it turned out that mesh mask wasn't just pure mesh by the way and that's a bit of a tongue twister but she had clear plastic underneath it was all safe and above board
1: I'm glad you've checked this out for us I do appreciate it you're doing a better job than some people in the old Irish government at this stage Craig fair play to you she also (laughs) followed up though and said that you know um, critics will be right uh, that it would have been unnecessary for her if no one had significantly criticised everything about the album to begin with. But you did, and I want revenge. So it's like, are we getting an album of Lana versus journalists? Because I'd be up for that. Um, but instead... Like when the Stereophonics release Mr. Right, sure? it's their best That's song. It's their best on the song. Like for so many reasons. It's a complete mess. Local Boy in a Photograph is their best it's also song, a good but song. It's also Yeah, it's a bit of a do joke. They have, do yeah. they have five good songs, Stereophonics?
2: might be pushing it well mate. who knows
1: could be a tough five. <laughs> could someday. probably get the Tree could we get a third uh, Dakota
2: Bartender and the Thief like Sex on Fire as Johnny Burrell pointed Bartender out Bartender in the Thief is a good song is it
1: yeah there we the, go we'll give them yeah. Tree My, so Mr. Ryder Bartender and the Thief and uh, Local logo one One photograph, photograph which is a great song uh, Superman's okay I suppose we should probably review the Lana Del Rey album instead though let's do that but before that as ever a plug for another show on the Headstuff Podcast Network <laughs>
0: I'm Emma Jane from Fail Harder, the podcast that chats to people at the top of their game about failure, from their first memory of failure to how they cope with it now. I have some unbelievable guests on the show like Paul Meskel, James Cavanagh, Georgina Campbell. The list just goes on. And of course, we'd be mad to take failure too seriously. So every week I have 20 questions in front of me numbered at random. Most are straightforward. However, some are a little more unconventional. And in the spirit of failure, my guest can pick the numbers. They might not like the results, but life's not fair and neither is my podcast.
1: But will Lana Del Rey fail? We're going to find out. The new album is called Chemtrails Over the Country Club. Here is the opening track. It's called White Dress. the
0: night shift. You were my man. Felt like I got this. <laughs> Down at the many music business conference. Down in Orlando, I was only 19. Down at the many music business because it, it was such a scene and I felt seen.
1: that's white dress by lana del rey and that's quite a high register craig um as ever primer time but here's my little twist for you this time who is lana del rey in 2021 specifically Ooh, that's an interesting question.
2: I might take some time getting to it, um, because she's the former Lizzie Grant. I guess she's still Lizzie Grant. Um, she's a songwriter from New York, which is, um, still true. And yeah, she created Lana Del Rey, who's become this slightly different thing in 2021, I think. It took off, as you were saying, about a decade ago. She's now, I guess, winning acclaim, um, from the kind of broadsheets and music press that were a bit tentative about her to begin with but also as we've heard criticism kind of equal measure some outrage which is intriguing really because when you boil it all down she's quite a traditional singer-songwriter um like mojo have had her on the cover for this album um which is her 7th and they like included a line in the piece about Joan Baez like advocating um her acceptance in the pantheon um, so basically getting like the the bootcut jean subscribers to mojo um on board if they weren't already that's quite a contrast to um 2011 <clears throat> And I did unearth a, a piece from around then where the title was Meet Lana Del Rey, the corporate engineered gangster Nancy Sinatra, who has the music community open arms. And the vibes from that piece was basically like the hive-minded Interscope worked with Lizzie Grant to create this um, Lana Del Rey character who's like the musical equivalent of a smoke-filled room and just talking quite a lot about um, this cocktail of like submissive sex object and mid-20th century American vamp, um, which I don't know, at the time was probably a bit of a sexist point of view. Um, She's still being dragged over that kind of persona, which she says is not a persona um, from a feminist point of view now which is interesting I immediately talked to Video Games um, on the recommendation at the time of uh, I think Hot Press's Selena Murphy I know you didn't take to it um, at the time it's just a matter of taste there was a kind of Rock Press sneer elsewhere that kind of weirdly focused on her persona despite the fact that like plenty of their own like 60s and 70s heroes didn't you know as if they didn't do exactly that Born to Die was the parent album, uh, which was their second. I think the first one was like a self-titled digital release that was quickly kind of withdrawn, but yeah, I, I kind of loved the Americanized trip-hop of that. Um, there were some big songs on it. She then kind of went slightly stickier um, and guitar-heavy with Ultraviolence. There was, you know, songs in Baz Luhrmann's Gatsby retelling. I only really checked back in on the third record, which is Honeymoon, which was more kind of Baroque pop, and it was a, a big Billboard success. She was all the while kind of accruing this um, quite um, hardcore stan base, which still remains today. The big breakthrough creatively for me, I think, was Lust for Life in 2017. We reviewed it on this show, and bar some kind of awkward hip-hop excursions, I guess the ambition of it really got to me. She was kind of engaging with modern America. The throwback influences were kind of creating this interesting link to 60s protest stuff, like a Laurel Canyon Redux vibe. You know, she she had a song on it called Coachella, Woodstock in my mind, um, which I think she, only she as an artist could make intrigue again and trolling rather than just obnoxious. And the songs were top tier. And then the world caught up with me on <laughs> Norman fucking Rockwell and yourself. You did like Lust for Life as well. In fairness, that was maybe the culmination of this, like, incisive pop culture approach. It was really, like capture the zeitgeist maybe it was state of the union stuff it was really vivid and vibrant and on point and it, there was a great balance of like strong pop songs and experimental sonics it was in our top five um when it came to the year-end list um that was two years ago. It, was, it didn't seem likely back in 2011 that Lana Del Rey on that album would be singing about like Kanye West being um, blonde and gone. I think the, the term was, which was really chiming with the public mood and music critics were nodding sagely along and like, thank God we've got Lana here, um, which is, you know, what a difference a decade makes. A lot's happened since then. We had the very ropey Charlie's Angels single, um, which we discussed on this show as well. Wasn't great. It was a spoken word album. Haven't heard it. She heavily influenced at least one Taylor Swift album, if not like an entire Taylor Swift era. And yeah, there's been lots of, I guess, Kanye-esque ire as well. Um, she's a polarizing um, character, I guess. Didn't seem to be a problem for her fan base when I saw her in Malta Hyde a couple of summers ago. And yeah, it was... It was A pretty incredible reaction. I think maybe apart from Kanye and Jay-Z in the tree arena, I haven't seen an audience react in that way where it just made me go, okay, this is what, like, Beatlemania must have been like. It was that, like, ear-splitting reaction to every song, which was just like, I was like, okay, now I get why the Beatles had to give up touring in 66 because they couldn't hear themselves. And, yeah, it was, you know, Gen Z people that were, like, probably were in primary school when video games came out and you know didn't really care, care about the controversy at the time because they were i don't know learning recorder in school um and she was just kind of really like indulging in the moment it was well earned she was a lot kind of more calm and collected and commanding than she was in like early um performances on tv and you know people would kind of question i think our vicar street show where you know she wasn't Uh, She wasn't quite up to par and she was quite a nervous performer, but she was just like the real deal there. Um, So it felt like this album would then be almost like the victory lap. The working title was uh, White Hot Forever. Um, The title in the end is great as well. Um, I really like it. Is there enough evidence in this album, Dave, that she will indeed be White Hot Forever?
1: Or maybe quite not forever. Wow. What was your take on it? <laughs> uh, On this album in particular, more in the latter camp there. Um, okay. But okay. not in any kind of egregious degree. And it should be noted as well from my own point of view that I do think Norman fucking Rockwell is a great record. It might never be fair to go back, you know, to the previous album of any artist putting out a new one and, and do a direct compare and contrast everything. You know, I mean, the career cannot, cannot of course, the, the entire discography can be looked at as one... Big piece when it's all done, or before then, perhaps, but also, you know, I think an album, much like a film, much like a song, should be allowed kind of live and breathe on its own terms. And this album certainly does. But I did find myself at one stage um throwing on Norman fucking Rockwell for the first time on vinyl, I might add, by the way, which was very enjoyable. And I was like, first time I've heard in a long time, it's a long album, and it's an album that we really liked on the show. It was in our top five. At the end of 2019, if I recall correctly, Dahi was having none of it, I think. I think you and I were fighting quite hard for it. I think he was very much not up for it at all. Um,
2: I mean, he was polite and complimentary, but you didn't think it was the record of the year. Anything, yeah, yeah,
1: I think that's how it went down. But ultimately... Uh, if you do a direct compare and contrast with both albums, I think this one falls down quite a bit, um, and I wonder if, like, that's, again, I don't know if that's fair, but I think I think she set a very high point on that record. It is excellent. Um, this one isn't. This one's okay. Uh, it starts off very well. I think the first three tracks in particular, White Dress, the title track, and Tulsa Jesus Freak, in which she uh, uh, takes us to a place called Arkansas, which I think is near Arkansas, but um, ultimately... <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> and even in like even in white dress, she's uh like she's name dropping white stripes and Kings of Leon, which is kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It 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 lost me quickly. This one, I think. And the more the week went on, the less I wanted to return to it. Uh, the more it hit the midpoint, I was like. Ah, fuck. I'm gonna just say it, aren't I? It's just another Lana Del Rey album. It's kind of where I was at with it. Uh, the goodwill and the magic that she kind of captured on the last one and the kind of, you know, turning a, a critic like me around who still thinks video games is a crazy overrated song all these years on. Um I, I don't know. I mean, like, outside of her, you know, social media outbursts on occasion that I just... But you are so often like preventative <laughs> you're, you're kind of like lana what are you I doing know. you're creating this controversy to give out about it and then making it a big problem and setting your fans and critics and just talking about uh representation when you know no one's really coming at you but you're just like i don't know so and listen she can do what she wants it's her life it's her twitter account whatever um but like ultimately i keep saying ultimately uh which i often say when i'm kind of stalling for a point i don't think i have a point because i'm not sure this record does is it just me or is it just like this is fine it's what i come to expect of her but it's certainly in the lower reaches it's 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 Mm. i don't know i i don't quite know what it's trying to say if it's trying to say anything and i do think that in comparison to much better written songs it's a curious thing to put out especially if there's another album coming in less than three months i know so quickly my
2: sister is a bigger lana fan than than me um and both of us, I guess, and got to this one first and was we were talking about it and she was kind of underwhelmed and she kind of midweek opined half-jokingly that like maybe we were wrong to praise her so much on the last couple of records because this feels like a bit of an indulgence, um, which is maybe a bit of a dark thing. It's like you withhold praise from Lana and she'll do her best work. But I think, you know... Th- the notion that this might be some form of coasting um there are stretches on this record where as i was listening to it that seemed like a good summation for sure i mean those stretches even if they're not topped here like i'm happily eight or nine listens in and it goes down easy and you know jack antonoff is back on board um he's everywhere at the moment. As I've said quite a bit on this show, I don't think he is going to be part of like the boundary pushing future of Lana Del Rey's music, but I do think they conjure up a kind of gorgeous sound and it's a very Lana sound. Like she's completely trademarked that at this point. Um, she's not really trend chasing. There's no real kind of modernism, but she's not really doing the faux retro chic stuff that she, that kind of got people's backs up initially. It's sturdy. It's tasteful. It's kind of timeless. Um, I was reading an interview she did with Antonov back in September um, for Interview Magazine. It was just like a Q&A between the two of them. Uh, it was a bit cutesy, but there was some kind of interesting bits in it. And she was talking about her like devotion to melody first. Um, you know, a record can be really revealing and have great ideas. But if the songs aren't there, she doesn't want to know. I think that kind of knack for melody sees her true, even if they're not like her absolute best. I do think she has earned a lot of good kind of will on, you know, for that world building knack she also has Uh, this kind of creative, if not a persona, then like the creative kind of universe that she has where she kind of lifts, lifts kind of musically ordinary material, out of that and keeps you engaged. I do think she's a great storyteller. Uh, I agree. I think the start of the Record is very good. I think she bookends it well as well. Like, I like that idea of, like, the strained, you know, wild falsetto on White Dress where she's reliving being 19 and, like, listening to <laughs> White Stripes and Kingsley on and then aligning it at the other end with, like, you know, listing off other kind of musical greats um, that might have appeared in, like, those women in music lists on in Q magazine years ago and then, you know, covering Joni Mitchell at the end, uh, after having just, in the preceding song, said she's going to do it. Just, just some nice kind of meta tags. I think it's quite clever. It kind of brings a full circle. But yeah, in between all of that, I don't know if there's much of a narrative. Um, I don't know if there is much of a point. And yeah, I do think her kind of archetype, is it still feels refreshing at this point, right? Because she's got that weird juxtaposition of... um unabashed privilege and throwback stuff but also doing social commentary and weirdly I think Lana Del Rey um in quote marks seems kind of far from performative now at this point when you cast it against like the weird like performative authenticity we see kind of everywhere else of people trying to convince everyone else that they're squeaky clean and on point and on message I think that she leaves that room for like a bit of chaos and intrigue in her art um you know, that messiness that really lifts off. I think it's way more mannered here though. I don't think there's so much of that. Um, there's highlights for sure. the Jesus Freak, as you say, like that thing of the Arcan- Arkansas Arkansas mispronunciation. That's kind of like a case in point of like, I can't figure out if she means to do it and I can't figure out if it irritates me or I think it's a small bit of genius. And that's kind of her at her best. She's almost like that, that kind of, you know, friend that you like meeting up with because you disagree with them quite a bit and there's that friction there I think there's some elements of that to her music and there's kind of moments of it here but overall in terms of a musical product and like cast against the last couple of records there's definite regression Um, it's a bit more plotting it's a bit blander Um, I think the intricacies and the kind of insights and small details of the last few aren't there and in that interview magazine um, chat with Jack Antonoff he says, like, it's it's kind of crazy how quickly we did this album. And I, I, I was thinking, it must have been so easy for you. And she says, um, I was actually thinking how different it's been making this one because of how I've been distracted by poetry this year, the Spoken Word album she put out. She said she was really stressed about the album um, because with Norma fucking Rockwell, she knew exactly what it was before she even went into it. She had the whole concept. And she says, with Chemtrails, she's kind of like, is this new folk? Oh, God, are we going country? And there's definitely evidence that she saved maybe some of her better lines for the poetry, I think, for sure. Like the likes of Let Me Love You, Like a Woman, Not All Who Wander Are Lost. Like if she's going country, it feels like country cliche. It feels very like live, laugh, love at times, which she's so far above and beyond that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's there's not the intrigue. There's not the depth. Uh, there's not the weirdness. It comes true in patches, but like, yeah, I don't know. I think like this is definitely her having accomplished quite a lot, you know, sitting back and admiring the view and just kind of taking stock. Um, I think there'll be kind of fresh fistas to conquer. I don't know if she's going to conquer those on the next album, if it's in June, like she still might be on her holidays. We shall see. But yeah. Judging against her body of work and what she's, you know, trying to accomplish, this is the Scream 6 out of 10 for me.
1: Um, On the mispronunciation thing, the Arkansas thing, I'm confident and certain that it's deliberate. I think she wears that kind of stuff well to echo something else that you said. Um, I, I feel like I'd long shaken off my kind of snobbiness or whatever my cynicism with regards to the idea of the character of Lana Del Rey I think if anything over the past 10 years and certainly in the last few years she has firmly established it as, as being a viable you know kind of creation and that's fine however I think she desperately needs some new lines this is a 5.5 out of 10 I should note before we move on on the subject of new albums Um, as of this podcast dropping I'm sure everyone who listens to the show is aware of this but just in case you're not for whatever reason reason for those i love's debut album is finally out in the world it's an album that we've been talking about forever on this show first surfaced two years ago and it's finally here so if you've uh, somehow managed to listen to us first i will I, I will understand if you knock us off immediately of course runny human and go and check that out because it's an exceptional piece of work and congratulations to david balfe on the release it's an amazing yeah amazing i just saw album. um it- it got a
2: great review in The Guardian from our boy or maybe my boy Alexis Petrudis which is always good to Smart see quality, man. Um,
1: and well deserved. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point it is time for our usual traditional top five. It's best and worst duets. Will we go as far as South America? I don't know. Uh, Craig, how are you feeling <laughs> about this one? <laughs>
2: I'm feeling good. There was a lot to pick from. Um, my problem was steering clear of maybe stuff we'd referenced before um, because we've talked a lo- about a, a lot of um, absolute trash over the last year or so. But um, I cut it down. I think the perimeters were good. Um duets being you know kind of co-billing or at least like an equal share in the creative process and share of the work we didn't want to just do like a tacked on kind of rap verse on a pop song which is kind of everywhere um it's like shooting fish in a barrel um and yeah i'm really intrigued to hear your favorites because there's a lot of good duets out there as well so yeah a little i'm, I'm intrigued
1: how how did you find it? Um, yeah, m- mostly good in terms of like, I didn't struggle too much or nothing. And yeah, like for me, it was very, uh, for me, not for me. For me, it was very much a case of, uh, I wanted the songs to justify the, the idea of a duet. I wanted there to be equal kind of sharing of the microphone, not just here's a verse and they're never heard from again, or here's, you know, a quick feature. Uh, I'm pretty happy with my top five. Uh, but, you know, in order to finish on a high, you have to go first because you're on worst. Okay. Um all right. I will say this is only number 5
2: because it's not a duet between two full-time music industry professionals. Uh, it's two entertainment professionals, so there's questions still to be asked. It's definitely a duet, right? This one is the only one that I think might be slightly stretching it, but I'm going Maverick slightly after my week off. I pulled the clip and I was kind of humming and hawing. And it got worse with every listen. It's hilarious, cringe. It's beyond like belief. I need to share it. I need to unload. So here is just under a minute of the eleven minutes that ruined Hollywood producer Alan Carr's career forever. I'm
1: a big fan of yours, Snow, but you know there's so much I'd like to know about you. Used to work a lot for Walt Disney.
0: Starring in cartoons every night and day. But you said goodbye to Grumpy and Sleepy. <laughs> Left the dwarves behind. Came to town to stay. Lights keep on burning. Cameras keep on turning. Ooh, rolling, rolling, keep the cameras rolling.
2: Oh, keep the cameras rolling. Or don't. Uh, Rob Lowe there, if you couldn't tell from the out-of-tune performance. Getting to know Snow White a little better. Uh, Snow White being played by Eileen Bowman, who was not to blame for any of this. That was the zany opening number from... um, The Oscars years ago, still seen as maybe the worst Oscars moment ever. Maybe worse than announcing the wrong best film. That bad. It was 1989. um, Bookaroo. First of all, a duet of Proud Mary in any context. Is there anything worse? It's just like... It might be the urtext, David, when it comes to awful karaoke staples. Um, It's obviously parodied here, but not in a way that's at all funny and... It kind of sunk Rob Lowe for a little bit as well. It was the end of his
1: um, amazing 80s. <laughs> it was a dark time. I think you'll and find a significantly he, more grim legal issue sunk him for a while, but this is probably didn't help him Yeah, I'd imagine so. Noted NFL fan, though. Definitely didn't help. Big Rob Lowe. an NFL fan, of course, you know. I really, really, really oh, yeah, photographed him in a game fan. where he's just wearing a hat that says NFL. <laughs> I
2: think he's a big sports fan in general. Yeah, um, obviously, you know, it was career recovered and he's the lovable Rob Lowe now and a lot of time has passed people do need to see I think the video for this um, where Rob Lowe is playing Prince Charming and he's trying to give it socks but my god it's just like he's already tapped out so he's kind of trying to look a bit aloof and he just comes off smug The video contains great, like, reaction shots. (laughs) There's a brilliant shot of, like, a clearly quite sozzled uh, Robert Downey Jr. just looking, like, sinking into a seat, being like, what the fuck am I watching? I know this man, and he's sinking his career. And like Rob Lowe's been a good sport about it since there was a New York Times piece a couple of years ago where they asked him about it. He's constantly asked about it and he said it's fitting and proper that we continue to honour the dark and tragic event that befell our nation 30 years later. Uh, I'm particularly looking forward to the candlelight vigils. Um, he said the moment he knew it was going out, he knew in rehearsals, he was only doing it because he was a fan of um, Marvin Hamlish, who was, it was the composer working on it. But he looked out in the middle of the performance and saw Barry Levinson, uh, who directed Rain Man, I think that year. And Barry Levinson was just looking at what was happening. And uh, Roblo said, I could see him uh, very clearly, like, pop eyed and mouthing, What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and Roblo was like, Well, there's my chance of ever featuring in a Barry Levinson film, <laughs> gone. Uh, he says, he realized quite quickly it was a huge mistake. There was actually a piece that's uh, worth reading um, where I think it was The Hollywood Reporter found Eileen Bowman who played Snow White and that was about all she did but it was interesting to see like her experience and yeah the performance isn't great that high-pitched chirp isn't really funny but she like kind of nails it she's in tune which you can't say for Rob Lowe and yeah she says basically she she said she like fell off the turn-up truck from San Diego Um, so yeah I, I think she means she's like a country bumpkin no, San Diego I thought that was pretty cosmopolitan I don't no, know the corona she landed in LA like,
1: painted a picture of yeah, maybe. Did the Corona's lie to us all these years? I don't even want to consider that, man. Um. Yeah, so
2: she was a young actor. Um, she thought she was auditioning for this film called Beach Blanket Babylon <laughs> at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And she did her piece. Then they put her in the Snow White outfit. And they put her in a, in a, like a limo with another actor who was also dressed as Snow White. And she said... Um, She was basically a hostage to Hollywood at this point, having just arrived. Her first stop was um, Alan Carr's house, who was the producer. um, And she says she remembered his swimming pool had pink water in it. He had a 30-foot Oscar outside his door, and he auditioned us in a robe, which is horrifying. Then they went to Hamlish's office. Um, She got the part. And some dude called Steve Silver was like... um, Okay, you've got the job. Do you know what this is for? And she was like, Yeah, Beach Blanket Babylon. And he said, No, honey, this is for the Oscars. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) She got paid scale, so like $350 a week. Um, Rob Lowe, who was playing Prince Charming, um, took her side during dress rehearsal and like, gave her a warning and was, like, looking out for her like, you need to be careful, the sharks in these waters, you have to be really ca- careful who you work with after this. He was, like, freaked out by this, what was going to happen. He'd never sung before and he was kind of insecure and he was just like, okay, we're both fucked. Um, and yeah, she said she just remembers lots of, kind of, sympathetic actors and actresses in the audience just kind of going, like, John Land- or Martin Landau was just kind of in the audience being like, don't worry, everything's fine. It's going grand. Tom Hanks was quite nice, um, and she basically left Hollywood thereafter. And she's still acting, and she's back in San Diego, and she's got a great story. But this is not a great duet.
1: Yeah, no, uh, no argument for me, Craig. Uh, so, Positivity Corner is where I find myself this week for the best duets, and uh, we'll go from grim, sunny Hollywood to rainy, inspirational Seattle for my number five. <laughs> Yes, it is, of course, Temple of the Dog. You heard Eddie Vedder there and Chris Cornell. They teamed up for this super group. This song is called Hunger Strike. And uh, Craig did a little celebration there when that came in. Were you expecting this one on my list, Craig?
2: I wouldn't have um, been expecting it a couple of weeks ago, but one of those weird kind of moments of serendipity, I just stumbled back upon this song maybe a week or so ago. And I was like, oh my God, yes, this is an absolute classic I was always maybe slightly the Nirvana camp in terms of the whole grunge movement and I wouldn't know the back
1: catalogs of these guys extensively, but this song is an absolute belter. Yeah, it's great. I was a Pearl Jam guy and ultimately... There's that word again. <laughs> So with this one, like it's weird, like with the top fives, like I don't, we don't always necessarily like, you know, rigidly be like, this is the fifth best, but I will say that like all day it's been, it's been bothering me. And even just based on your reaction, I was like, yeah, no, this should be higher. This should be higher on my list. It's an amazing song, but it doesn't matter. It's here. And that's the most important thing. Um, this was a one-off project. There was only ever one album, and it was a tribute, essentially, by Chris Cornell to the late Andrew Wood, who was the lead singer of Mother Love Bone, who passed away, I think, at the age of 24, following a heroin overdose. Um, the lineup on this project included Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament. Both were in Mother Love Bone and would later move on to Pearl Jam, who I think at the time were called Mookie Blaylock. Uh, Eddie Vedder was there. Uh, Matt Cameron, Soundgarden, and later Pearl Jam. And Mike McCready, also later Pearl Jam. So it's kind of like, you know, it's it's still early days. Like, this is like 1990, 1991. Um And as a matter of fact, like, I mean, in terms of this track coming together, it's one of those classic almost didn't happen kind of stories where uh, Chris Cornell had said that, like, the album was almost done. Apparently it was nine tracks long and he doesn't like odd numbers. So he wanted one more song. Uh, this was the song that made it oh. on. If that's true, it could be apocryphal. Um, But he said, Chris Cornell said, when we started rehearsing the songs, I pulled out Hunger Strike and I had this feeling that it was going to just kind of be filler. It didn't feel like a real song. Eddie was sitting there kind of waiting for a rehearsal with his band and I was singing parts and Eddie kind of humbly but with some balls walked up to the mic and started singing the low parts for me because he saw it was kind of hard. We got through a couple of choruses of him doing that and suddenly the light bulb came on in my head. This guy's voice is amazing for these parts. History wrote itself after that and it became the single. Eddie Vedder recalls uh, a similar story. Said it was during the same week that I was up there in Seattle rehearsing with the band. Day four, maybe day five. They did a Temple of the Dog rehearsal after ours. I got to watch these songs, watch how Chris was working and watch Matt Cameron play the drums. It got to hunger strike. I was sitting in the corner putting duct tape on a little African drum. About two thirds of the way through, he was having to cut off the one line and start the other. I'm not now, and I certainly wasn't then, self-assured or cocky, but I could hear what he was trying to do. So I walked up to the microphone, which I'm really surprised that I did, and I sang the other part, going hungry. hungry. Hungry Going Hungry. The next time I was up, he asked me if I'd record it. So it was just me and Chris in the same studio that uh, they would later make Pearl Jam's 10 record in. I really like hearing that song. I feel like I could be really proud of it because one, I didn't write it. And two, it was such a nice way to be ushered onto vinyl for the first time. I'm indebted to Chris for being invited onto that track. It was the first time I ever heard myself on a real record. It could be one of my most favorite songs I've ever been on or the most meaningful. And it's like, in terms of duet, like, I mean, it's interesting because it's basically like each guy doing the same verse and then kind of overlapping each other. It's very simple, but it works mm. absolutely beautifully. Um you could probably make the argument that Vetter dominates the song in terms of that like that low kind of Eddie Vetter baritone. He takes the second verse. His arrival is a big moment. It really, so really cool. is. Every time yeah. you hear it, you're like, yeah! It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like like yeah, it feels like they're kinda of like giving each other a high five or something. And then by the end of it, you've got Cornell's kind of vocal, like, you know reaching for the heavens and it's just a beautiful union it's a beautiful moment in grunge in music in general and obviously you know it was meant to be for for one of their kind of fallen brothers and in that regard it works perfectly it's so of its time it's incredibly straightforward and yeah I hadn't heard it in forever either and then when I got to it again this week for a while I listened to it a few weeks ago I considered it for a previous top five we did and I was talking to a good friend of the show Carlo Monaco who is a huge fucking fan of Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder and all that and yeah, I know, like, it's 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 kind of, this is like a really sacred song for people who are into those bands. And I think it holds up really, really well, 30 years on. It's fucking beautiful.
2: I love the background detail there you, you gave us, kind of left me feeling warm and fuzzy. Actually, Carlo sent me a clip recently enough of um an anecdote Tom Morello had. I think it was on Howard Stern or something but he was talking about um when audio slaves come together. Have you seen that clip? It's amazing. So basically... Um, <laughs> It was Tom Morello and the Rage guys uh, trying to figure something out, get a singer in, um, start a project. They wanted Chris, and they were working with uh, our boy Rick Rubin uh, to make something happen. So they set up a meeting with Chris Cornell uh, to kind of hash it out, see if there was any potential in a collaboration. And... Tom Morello's like, Rick Rubin was clearly mad into it because like he got into my car. And at the time, like Rick Rubin was traveling around in limousines within limousines, (laughs) but he got in my crappy car to go and visit Chris Cornell. He says on the, the last lonely mansion in L.A. So they drive outright and they're faced with this like dark Gothic mansion that Chris Cornell was like living in at the time. They both get out of the car and as they're approaching the place, like the doors, the big huge front doors just kind of swing open by themselves. (laughs) Like there's something supernatural going on. And Chris Cornell just comes out like as if he's Dracula, (laughs) just fully dressed up, moving like really slowly and kind of dramatically and not like kind of showing any emotion whatsoever, not being like, oh, hey, guys, come on in. We'll have a few beers and like we'll, we'll get to work. And Tom Morello says, Rick Rubin just turned to him and goes, Let's get the fuck <laughs> out of here, <laughs> it <was> like, uh, <laughs> which is sensational. <laughs> but they went inside and became like massively good friends, obviously. And Audio Slave had some belters yeah, as well. Just yeah, I, I love think that story. I would
1: say before we move on, I'd say real quick, I think that first Audio Slave record is a lot better than people give it credit for. I think it's aged very, very well. Oh, for sure. And as always, rest in peace, Chris Cornell.
2: Yeah, here, here. Okay, um let's go to the bad place again. A lot more musical prestige on display with this next one. Um, which kind of adds to the awful. Here's two of pop music's good guys again, which is probably part of the problem.
0: Ebony and ivory Live together in perfect harmony Side by side on my piano Keyboard, oh lord
2: Ebony and Ivory from Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder, and it's just so incredibly saccharine. Uh, Saccharin doesn't really cut it. I kind of like a lot of um, boomer legends. I think Paul and Stevie didn't really have a good 80s um, creatively. Um, Stevie was actually hitting kind of commercial highs. He did, um, you know, I just called Say I Love You. He was... Really lowering himself to Lionel Richie levels, sadly. That's a bit harsh on Lionel Richie. Apparently he's a lovely bloke. My aunt says he's a lovely bloke. No, no, stick the boot in, Craig. Um, (laughs) But this was just obviously well-intentioned and it got subsequently banned in South Africa during apartheid because um, Stevie dedicated his Oscar um, in, I think, 84 to Nelson Mandela. But, my God, just so simplistic um, to the point of... uh, being kind of offensive and a bit nauseating, it's it's got a memorable tune which makes it worse. It just gnaws at your soul. And I think the problem with this is Paul McCartney is like one of the good guys. He's always got like that optimism in everything he does. That's kind of why the Beatles worked because like Lennon and George Harrison to a lesser extent could kind of balance that out. Stevie Wonder is just like an absolute all-time genius. Like his run in the 70s was incredible. I've read people say previously that like actually what stopped him really going to the absolute top was that he was slightly too optimistic and he didn't have that kind of grit uh, which I kind of disagree with but I think here it's two optimists getting together and being like you know the keys on the piano or piano as they keep seeing it really infuriatingly like maybe if we were just like this piano the world would be a better place and it's just it's right up there with like McCartney's most sickly kind of songs like he's got so many of them like I love him dearly but Jesus because I think like the end point of this is Gal Gadot like sweetly singing Imagine With our Celebrity Mates do you know what I mean so I think ultimately this did more musical harm than good for sure although it did solve racism uh, so maybe I'm being yeah, hurt. Yeah,
1: Craig, come on. I mean, like, think about the implications there. Like, the incredibly harmonious, perfect world we live in, thanks to this wonderful piece of music. <laughs> Incidentally, it's, uh, it is, I think we've just gone past the year anniversary of that Imagine thing, which has aged, I oh, mean, well. like milk. Like, 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 probably, like, the absolute worst thing to happen in the last 12 months, which really is saying something. And yeah, this is a horrible song, and I will run away if, it, if someone plays it. Uh, at number four for me, back in the good, the good land of good duets... It's this one. That's right, Curveball, number four for me. It's Coldplay and Brianna, and the song is Princess of China. Am I saying this is a better song than Hunger Strike? Not necessarily, but I really do love it. <laughs> Like you are, I think Dave. it's very, very underrated. This one, um, yeah. Every now and then, you know, despite my despite my numerous, uh, my endless supply of snark music, I will somehow go to bat for Coldplay of all bands. I think they have a bunch of good songs, and this is absolutely one of them. It's funny. I was looking up the uh, like the kind of the details on this one, and like the opening line on the Wikipedia page is like "Princess of China" is a duet recorded by British rock band Coldplay and Barbadian singer Rihanna, and it just made me realize that like. Uh, factual but, but it's a decade of like tabloids like always following the word barbadian with the word beauty like it's just completely burned into my the barbadian beauty like it's such a constant horrible thing that cause probably still yeah. i would imagine still exists in the pages of the sun and various others uh this was a song i was a single as well on the fifth album of theirs called milo xyloto and this was when coldplay went all uh neon spray paint remember that they just like spray painted everything their clothes oh, i do they was not piano. a great idea <laughs> it
2: was everywhere hate that era some good see songs this play, is the Jesus.
1: thing and this is kind of why i chose this i actually kind of like this era of coldplay uh i think that that album has some belters and this is the standout one but like i think this is a wildly underrated banger i think it's a great song um i think the ending of it in particular really really gets gets me like like on an emotional level uh the kind of dual refrain of you really hurt me and the fucking hammering of the piano keys I'm like, it's a torch anthem. I I think it's so well done. It's so simple. I think it's a really smart pop song. I think it doesn't get enough credit. Uh, it could have turned out extremely hollow and cash grabby. I mean, for example, Chris Martin and Coldplay teaming up with Beyonce on the horrible Hymn for the Weekend about five years later. Oh. I think on this one, though, Chris Martin and Rihanna complement each other really well. She sounds absolutely <coughs> massive on this. It's more of her, her performance than his that stands out, which in the world of massive music industry ego, I like it. It feels like he played it smart and got out of her way. And every time she goes for it, it feels like a powerful light is kind of shining through. And like, it, it is like a, you know attractive feature sell it as a single but i do think there's more going on under the hood and as as for how yeah, it came together he does that quite well yeah well he, this is the thing i mean like I, I don't like i've never seen coldplay live and i hope i do someday because as i always say here it's a great show i don't adore them i don't know if i'll ever buy a vinyl but i think when they're good they're very very good and his earnestness works for me i mean come on we're coming off the episode in which i said that macklemore's irish celebration won me <laughs> over yeah Um, And I also, sorry, a quick update, by the way, because a couple people did get on to me. When I was saying about Ireland's call on that episode, it's because when I said like Aaron Devine was outlawed, the reason was, I was kind of, I was close. The reason was apparently that like uh, Ulster players felt that it wasn't really appropriate, you know, for them to have. So they wanted something of more... Fair enough, but still a terrible song. Uh, this is a great song, and though. also fuck, fuck rugby. rugby. Kind of? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was gutted that Ireland won. Like, yeah, if anything, my my disparaging. Oh, dude, yeah.
2: When I saw that score, I was like, Ugh. <laughs> I'm not. I wasn't gutted, but a part of me was like, Ugh.
1: <laughs> I know. I was like, ah, oh, damn it, that's a pity. Would have been fun, but yeah, what can you do? Um, all rugby fans canceling the show, immediately, I know, but.
2: Yeah, losing What, patrons what can, can I say? Um, but no,
1: um this was written with Rihanna in mind. So unlike that time he wrote a song for Bowie and Bowie said no. She said yes. Uh he <laughs> talked about how he put it to her. Um he said like the album is designed as a whole piece. It has boy and girl lead characters, and top of our list was Rihanna. But it took a while to pick up the courage to ask her. We did a show in Las Vegas and I met her and I said, Do you think there's any chance? I was very Hugh Grant like and spluttering about it, which I can completely see. She said yes. Now there's an interesting undercurrent here. And I love how, like, the actual full date is here. Like, it's a fucking, you know, FBI investigation. On the 21st of September, 2011, reports surfaced online that Will Champion, who plays the drums in Coldplay, had expressed interest in singing the lyrics that were ultimately delegated to Rihanna. Chris Martin dispelled the suggestion that there's any tension between the bandmates and Rihanna, saying, There's a bit of a love story thread, so we really needed someone to sing higher than me. For all Will's good intentions, he can't do it. You need to be female. (laughs)
2: whoa that's interesting um yeah i was i was racking my brains thinking of um i nearly picked this for one of our top fives and i was thinking was it like weird collaborations and i remembered it was actually our worst lyrics one but in the end i didn't include it and there's some horrendous lyrics in this i didn't include it because i like the song Uh, i love the production on it i think it's like a better version of paradise maybe um and yeah, the lyrics are weird, but weirdly, it kind of works. It kind of hangs together, all right. And maybe it's a Rihanna thing. Like My favourite Rihanna song is probably Man Down, and those lyrics don't make any sense at points as well, but it kind of adds to the pop fun of it all. So yeah, I'll give it to you. All right, cool. My number three is an Owen News section mainstay. Um, it's Dolly Parton, and she's teaming up with another All American legend. What
0: kind of man? You're always a Just taking it in. Slow. but taking it just as far as it wants to go. Well, you're all I can handle and that scene a lot. Well, you've got the handle that sure hits the spot. And you got just what it takes to, to take, to take what, what I got. And we're just sweet, loving friends. Just sweet, <laughs> loving friends.
2: Dolly Parton and um, sliced alone on Sweet, Loving Friends. Um, sorry, sweet, <laughs> love and friends. <laughs> that elongated, barely in tune sweet really starts to great around chorus number You're three. You're not going to have go at Rocky now, um, are you, Craig? Shock horror, Rocky wasn't a singer, Dave. <laughs> and this um, duet is just one um, of the many songs featured on the soundtrack to Rhinestone which was a 1984 um, musical comedy film that Stallone was behind. Uh, He got Dolly Parton on board. It was a critical and financial failure, you'll be shocked to hear. Dolly Parton did have two hits on the album. They did not feature Stallone. Um, And the poster for it's actually great. You've got, like, Dolly beating a shocked Stallone in an arm wrestle, which is, like, class. And, uh, yeah, the plot was, like, basically... Dolly Parton's a country singer she's trying to get out of her contract with her manager so she bets she can like turn the next person she sees into like a Nashville crooner and unfortunately the next person is Sylvester Stallone who's like this cocky brash uh, New York City cabbie and basically she takes him under her wing and like brings brings him to Tennessee and just like trains him in all things kind of country Um, now this song is supposed to be post transformation when he's good um, but it doesn't really quite work um, Stallone initially said listen the only fun I ever had on a movie set was with Dolly Parton on Rhinestone it was great but then he kind of went on to say actually creatively it got away from me the director was supposed to be uh, Mike Nichols um, but it went to a different dude it was Bob Clark and he's like Bob was a nice guy but the film went in a direction that literally shattered my internal core Uh and <laughs> He was just, like, not having it. He said he regretted the entire film. Snake were supposed to do songs. He wanted it to be edgier. I can only imagine what that would have been like. But, um, yeah, there's, like, no chemistry. From all the reviews I'm seeing, there was no chemistry on screen. It translates to the soundtrack. They were fine, though. Like, Stallone had Rocky IV, I think, the next year. Dollywood opened a couple of years
1: later. Everyone recovered. The whole punk thing was kicking off. I can't believe yeah, I can't, yeah was. I honest. can't believe that uh, this is the only time he had fun on a set. What about Demolition Man? That looked like a bit of a laugh, no? I mean. Yeah, and he said that quote. Let me see. That quote
2: was from 2006. Yeah, so Demolition Man was in the bag. I don't know. Maybe he's misremembering, but. um Maybe he's just finding some, like trying to find some solace
1: from the whole sorry affair. Possibly. Robbed of an Oscar, by the way, uh, for Creed. Should have won. But, you know, lots of injustices (laughs) out there, this song being one of them. All right, let's go to 1998. (laughs) boy is mine craig that's who the boy is that's who he belongs to me you can have him brandy and monica the boy is mine from 1998 an incredible duet so incredible that when brandy put out an album and when monica put out an album this song was on both of them because it went to both of them so the whole backstory here is that this song was written and it was supposed to be a solo song by brandy But she and her producers agreed that it would be better if it was was a duet. They were inspired by Michael Jackson and your buddy, Paul McCartney. Uh, Their duet, The Girl Is Mine. And we're like, which was the same year, I think, as Ebony and Ivory. So he got something right that year. What a year! Um, but this was uh, sixteen years later, of course. Uh, at the time, both Brandy and Monica were quite young. I think they were like seventeen, eighteen, perhaps. And uh, this one was a huge success. It was, I think, it was the biggest selling single of that year. It was massive. It comes on now when you're flicking through the channels on a Saturday night and you're like, oh man, yes, this song fucking rules. It's great. Very of its time in the best possible way. Uh, the story goes that like when es- essentially like Brandy picked Monica, supposedly, and they had to like, you know, record labels contact each other. It was all set up. It was going to happen. Apparently the first recording of this in which they did record it together in the same place was thrown out because it wasn't good enough. I don't know like what exactly went down, but monica re-recorded her vocals elsewhere and then they stitched them together and you hear what you hear um huge hit like i say there was a music video directed by joseph Kahn, who went on to make lots of other videos and films and is taylor swift's best mate and chief propaganda expert i believe these days uh the video includes the girls fighting over a guy do you know who it is it's an actor he's been in some stuff um let me think very handsome man very attractive
2: a very attractive who would later go on to
1: to co-star with Eminem and 8 Mile it's Makai Fiverr so he's the object Ah, of their affections I don't remember the video oh a classic video it's very like again of its time like you know clearly set in like a big apartment block lots of primary colours and at the end of it, he shows up and they both answer the door and he's screwed, man, because girl power wills out. It's actually very reminiscent Love of it. a horrendously bad song, comically unfunny, um, God, in the last five or six years, I think, maybe the last 10 years, called Same Girl by Usher and Ora Kelly, who, you know, is a horrific human being. Uh And that song is just outrageously bad. This is outrageously good, though. But I think it was a tough time for both Brandy and Monica. They were plagued by lots of tabloid rumors that they hated each other. Uh, supposedly, one of the reasons Brandy wanted to do it with Monica was to try and quash all that. Said that they'd seen each other at award shows, never really hung out together, and if anything, this would help them, it would help the image for both of them. That wasn't really the case. They were still plagued by rumours that they did, in fact, not like each other. There was thoughts, uh, there was talk that Brandy was really pissed off that Monica named her subsequent album "The Boy Is Mine," the one that this one appears on 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 her record. So, all kinds of problems. And then back in 2012, Monica talked about it, said we were young, we could barely stay in the room with each other. By no means was it jealousy or envy. She and I are polar opposites, and instead of embracing that, we used our differences as reasons not to be amongst each other. So despite the unity on the song, it wasn't actually present in real life. But what a song it is, Craig
2: yeah really like that and it kind of makes you long for that 90s R&B it was just so like lush and opulent sounding and like I love a lot of the R&B now but it's just like old man Craig here <laughs> <laughs> to talk about <laughs> <I love laughs> that strip back Stark thing like sometimes you just need that big music production and it still sounds great yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> alright my runner up for worst um, most damning indictment of this song is probably the fact that Catherine Zeta-Jones kind of like sub Celine Dion delivery is not the worst thing about it by any means oh.
0: Why you and
2: Oh <laughs> True Love Ways there uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones with David Essex I don't know how up to speed you are with David Essex's career uh, Dave I can maybe bring you up to speed yeah, I always catch thought he was there, like the kind of British version of Johnny Logan Like, he kind of operates in that terrain. Or maybe it's vice versa, because I think he was big in the 70s, but apparently he was, like, huge. His Wikipedia, unless he wrote it himself, but there's references, (laughs) talk about his pop idol looks, which gave him a strong female fan base. And uh, his tours in Britain created scenes of hysteria reminiscent of Beatlemania. Uh, He was, like, voted number one British male vocalist uh, for a couple of years. He was a teen idol. I can't believe it because every David Essex song I've heard, I'm like, this man cannot sing. He's like, he's kind of like an Andrew Lloyd Webber version of a pop star. This was 1994. um, So, you know, he was getting on in, like, teen idol stakes. Catherine Zeta-Jones was in her early 20s. Apparently they dated, um and like it's one of those things of like i'm not sure if they did they were in some tv stuff together i don't know if it's like much like the press would love to kind of set you know female against female just for kind of the, the headlines i guess back then a lot of it was like oh they're collabor- collaborating together of course they're dating but um she was also linked with like john leslie mick hucknell, um it was quite a list so i don't know maybe you can slot them in there just like who pick knows? a fucking sleaze ball there like
1: who <laughs> I else, else I you know, got yeah. <laughs>
2: And just four short years later, she'd be um, meeting Michael Douglas and leaving for Hollywood, and everything would be absolutely fine.
1: His films uh, are very chaste. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Do you know what his pickup line to her was, apparently? I'm Michael Douglas. Hello.
2: No, he said, <laughs> I'd like to fodder your children. <laughs> <laughs> still on. married, folks. And they have those children. Still happily married. And Can very you imagine? Happy
1: Can you imagine? Like, in the workings. <laughs> <laughs> when this is all over. Dave, she's really attractive. Go over and talk to her. Oh, I couldn't, can't Craig. No, okay, I will. What Hello. Will I say? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, how's it Let's going? talk about, you know, wanting to settle down. <laughs> I'd like to father your children. Oh. <laughs> security, like that is disgusting. Horrific. This song is disgusting.
2: <laughs> Back to the content. The fact this is from 1994 is crazy, right? Because it does sound like one of those horrible 80s productions where they're covering a 50s song, but it sounds more dated than the original because it's just horribly done. It sounds like like the platonic kind of ideal of a chart topper for Simon Cowell like Robson and Jerome I think did Unchained Melody like a year later and this kind of like this is very much in the same ballpark old timey 50 song just kind of granny music chip plastic production Butland's quality vocal performances Actually, something for the she- dads
1: in Catherine <laughs> Dina Jones yeah very yeah much. like her her
2: performance is fine it's just way over the top because like it doesn't mesh with his energy shall we say whatsoever and horrendous the music is horrific. That kind of like baroom
1: thing is just really upsetting. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, like, you know,
1: it's very, um, it's very, it's very, it got over it. It's very Alan's deep bath. Like I don't oh, like it Oh, it totally is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's like aiming for sultry, but it's just like sultry in like a kind of, yeah, fucking motel somewhere. I, yeah. I don't know how, what became David Essex. I'd imagine he's like perpetually like on a kind of breakfast morning couch talking to Eamon Holmes about his like, you know, upcoming theatre performance. I don't know.
1: Yeah, which the best is from a this one-man is not show called <laughs> yeah. what became a david essex all right number yeah, two yeah. for me um how about we'll keep it sultry i suppose here's a beautiful song about murder most foul the
0: last thing i heard was a martyred word as he knelt above me with a rock in his face on the last day i took her where the wild roses grow she lay on the bank the wind light as a thief, and I kissed a goodbye, said all oh, beauty must die, and I leant
1: down and planted a rose tween Yes, indeed. Tween it is, a chorus. Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue. The song is Where the Wild Roses Grow, a murder ballad on a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds record called Murder Ballads in 1996, and uh, it's incredible. You know, it's kind of one of those ones where it's like, oh, yeah, like, how could you do a top five duet to not include this one? It's exceptional. And we're fans of both Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue in this show, as yeah. recent episodes will attest to. And again, I, I think this one handily dispels the myth that Kylie Minogue was, you know, some kind of just nothing pop star for a long time. This is from the mid 90s, was before her kind of reascension, but proof positive that she is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, Nick Cave describes writing the song, which is itself inspired by a traditional song called Down in the Willow Garden, which is the tale of a man courting a woman and killing her while they're out together. Um, And, you know, I mean, horrible subject matter, of course. But this isn't a cave territory when it comes to the macabre of music, you know? Um, And again, somehow finds the beauty in it. Uh, He describes writing the song and says, It was written very much with Kylie Minogue in mind. I wanted to write a song for her for many years. I had a quiet obsession with her for about six years. I wrote several songs for her, none of which I felt was appropriate to give to her. It was only when I wrote this song, which is a dialogue between a killer, it's very dodgy. A dialogue between a killer and his victim that I thought I'd finally written, written the right song for her to sing. I sent it to her and she replied the next day uh saying yes it seems um he sent it he sent the song with a different singer on it singing her lines to her parents house because she was staying there at the time again all of this sounds so horrible and sinister and i guess this is the case of like you know you're very much stretching the concept of art and of course you know for anyone who's never heard the song before i mean again you know you you feel like you have to boil a plate stress it out that like in no way do we condone the actions of the characters in this music but like This is the world that Nick Cave is often drawn to. It often has horrible stuff happening in it. And I think if anyone's going to do it, at least it's done with a sense of, you know, kind of poetry and incredible grace. And the vocals by both performers are absolutely fantastic. The arrangement is fucking beautiful. It's an amazing song. I think I remember the video causing some controversy at the time as well.
2: Yeah, I remember that video
1: for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Tell the listener about it, Craig.
2: Um, basically Nick just does Kylie in, essentially. It plays out, <laughs> um, the song. It's just obviously such a graphic kind of depiction and it's quite visceral and it's a murder ballad, um, but it's like, you know, artfully shot. It's a really good piece of work, I think. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's I quite- mean, I,
1: again, like it's tough to be like, like, again, I mean, like it's, 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 it's really tricky. I mean, I think, I think it exists in its own world. I mean, there was never a point when I was picking this until right now when I'm talking about it, that I was like is this really inappropriate to have a song about a man murdering a woman particularly you know when you take recent news stories into account and everything i mean like in no way do we mean to diminish anything like that and i'm getting a bit tongue-tied talking about it but like for me it's always just been an incredible song i mean it's always been an incredible example of the dark parts of art and like the fact that you know you even have a genre called murder ballads like i mean yeah i don't know am i am i out on a limb here craig or is I mean, it's pretty
2: apparent that this song was never meant to be a celebration. And it's, you know, well that Nick Cave um, goes back to quite a lot, but everything I've seen him kind of write and talk about, he's just, you know, horrified every time he does. But I think it's it's kind of a necessary thing to get out there in art, um, far better out than in, in terms of art. And yeah, it's just, it's so... It's so well produced, the the performances are spot on. Kylie was clearly searching for a new direction. I mean, in the 90s she had, you know, what people, again, the press probably joked at the time that she was going through an indie phase, but she was like a, you know, seeker, she was looking for um, something that would suit her. Um, So, you know, uh, it was a great collaboration to Australian icons. And from there, like just, you know, she kind of skyrocketed again. She found her voice. She found her place. And it's great to have both of them. Good choice. Okay. My number one. Right. I ended up steering clear of like um like posthumous covers <laughs> because there's, you know, they're always a bit creepy. Um, speaking of, usually just clumsily done. Um, and there's so many of them. So I didn't really go there. My number one is... Far creepier, precisely because it sounds like a posthumous collaboration, despite the fact that boat singers were alive when it was recorded.
0: When I tried to resist, well, baby I know so well that I've got you under, under my, my skin. skin. I would sacrifice anything from what might for the sake holding you near, in spite of a warning voice. Comes
1: in the night, it repeats and shouts Out in my go.
2: Oh, <laughs> Bono there with old blue eyes. Frank Sinatra. Oh. And uh, yeah, Cole Porter's timeless. I've got you under my skin there. Um yeah, so I you know, like last week we had a bigging up of Bono and you two. Um I love you too. I don't hate Bono. Um, so much of what, you know, people hate about Bono, though, I recognise in this song, I think. He's, um, he's overextending himself. He's going, you know, of course I can be the cool crooner. Um, he's clearly aching to be like hanging out with the Rat Pack. Um it's just quite a weird, slimy vocal delivery. He's kind of ingratiating himself with, you know, American culture and celebrity. And he's clearly, the thing is, he's clearly singing this to Frank, his big hero. It gets a bit like Talented Mr. Ripley, right? He wants to get Frank under his skin. And this was like, you know, 90s when he starts doing all these like, you know, profound homages to America. Like you had the, you know, Elvis ate America before America ate him. And he's writing poetry in the New York Times and like, he did he did a couple of years ago he wrote a, a column for the New York Times where he was talking about Sinatra and they actually struck up a bit of a friendship and he was speaking about how um like Sinatra says to him, uh, I don't usually hang around with men who wear earrings and bonos like dining out and this. He's like, Oh yeah, but actually he was great and blah blah blah. <laughs> And he ends up talking about a time he started a sing-song of My Way in a pub in Dublin uh, just as the recession hit, like 2008-ish. And he's like, the song brought everyone together and helped distract them from the economic gloom. Can you imagine when the fucking world, like the banking system collapsed? You're in Dublin and like the Celtic Tiger is fucked and Bono's like, it's all right, lads. Come on, I did it all. (laughs) Just like breaks into my way
1: i can't imagine it yeah I actually, oh I my god guarantee it gavin friday on the keys presumably in the corner yeah uh, this is, like, the best example of his,
2: like, monumental hobnobbing. And I will say, the way this w- was recorded was it was um, an electronically assembled duet. So Sinatra was doing this duet's album where he specified that he didn't want to have to be with the people that were going to be on the album. So he recorded his parts. were all j- They were all just songs he'd previously done. He's kind of phoning it in. And then the artists had to record their stuff kind of reacting to what he'd done. And you can hear Bono reacting. And my God...
1: I um yeah I, I've no I've no problems with this selection I I'm surprised that your top five has gone by and that Tom Jones didn't feature at any point I really thought he'd be in there for sure you know remember didn't remember he he went through a phase there around the early two thousands where everything he did was a duet for a while Keras
2: Matthews and yeah the Stereophonics one was there for me as well Cardigans a lot of cringy well? videos burn down the house yeah oh all that kind of stuff, you know. It was but very, you know what like, I think it was? It, it, like, I think all those covers had the inherent Tom Jones showmanship and cheesiness where you can never really take them seriously anyway. So, like, a duet doesn't, you know,
1: ruin him, really. Sex bomb, Craig? It's I don't know. Par- okay, sex
2: bomb. Was that, was that a duet, though? Bomb. I don't know if it was a duet.
1: Uh, it was with That was team. all him, maybe, I think. <laughs> That's <not laughs> on. Uh, i tell you But tell something
2: you what, like right? this is so self-serious and Bono is just, like, clearly trying to, like... I don't know. Like, I, I think around that time as well, he um, he did this whole, like, he gave the Lifetime Achievement Awards to Frank Sinatra at the Grammys and he did this, like, 10-minute long speech where it's just, like, full of Bonoisms and... Uh, let me, hold on a sec. I just think 10 I, minutes, I took,
1: really? Brevity. <laughs>
2: I'll tell you how it ended, right? Um alright this is how it ends ladies and gentlemen are you ready to welcome a man heavier than the Empire State more connected than the Twin Towers Uh, not anymore Uh, as as recognisable as the Statue of Liberty and living proof that God is a Catholic will you welcome (laughs) the King of New York City Francis Albert Sinatra and then Frank Sinatra comes out and he's like completely like emotionless right to be him and Bono puts a cigar back in his mouth to kind of grieve Frank to be like yeah I've got the cigar Frank And it's like, fucking hell.
1: (laughs) It's just fucking hell. This is outrageous. I can't say. (laughs) (laughs) You said enough. I can't something about Tom Jones, though. If we found ourselves like on the on the eve of the pandemic and we had like the opportunity for me to recreate the Bono thing, I'd probably go with uh, with Sex Bomb by Tom Jones, you know, because it's just an outrageous, terrible song. He's not in my number one, though. Um, I feel like Craig will probably be able to guess what my number one is. I think it may have featured on a previous top five. And for me, it's just like it's a list like this begins and ends with it. But listener, in case you're not sure what I'm about to throw to, I want you to I want you to picture you're at your you're at your 10 year high school reunion. You're looking good. It's a stressful evening. There's people out to get you in all kinds of ways. You're wearing a beautiful black suit. You're John Cusack. You're staring into the eyes of a baby. And you now have a bit of a, a bit of a new outlook on life. just unbelievable it's under pressure by queen and david bowie of course uh i'm usually kind of harping on that craig picks bowie too much so i've picked him this week uh just an outstanding outstanding perfect song uh the film i was referencing there of course was gross point blank which i actually rewatched watched this week, it last craig. friday did you yes. <laughs> I, I, I watched it yesterday just on a whim <laughs> I'm saying, like, doing mad. this doing this list brought me back to it now it's a film i've seen many many times And I haven't seen it in a long time. I was worried maybe it didn't hold up. Nope, it holds up. I think it's a five-star classic. And that whole sequence... One of the best scripts of all time. It's just tremendous. That whole sequence is amazing. Check it out if you never have. Incredible, incredible dark comedy. Done so, so well. And yeah, I mean, you know, that punk's either in love with that guy's daughter or he has a newfound respect for life, which is how you would feel if you had that moment when this song was crashing down and you realized that maybe it was time to stop killing people and maybe start living a bit more. Uh, I've never killed someone though, so, you know, I don't know. But uh, moving on. Glad we got that
2: clarification. (laughs) (laughs) Songwise.
1: Under pressure. What more can you say? Titans coming together. I guess, almost like the Temple of the Dog situation, this was kind of an accident as well. Do you know the whole background to this one, Craig?
2: I'm not sure I know the whole background. Um, did you like? Did Bowie stumble into a
1: studio and they were just there? that's apparently what yeah it's been described as the notorious session Freddie Mercury and David Bowie shared before during and after the recording of Queen's iconic hit will go down in history may also be the reason for the shared intensity of the track according to this uh, description from a website I can't remember that I took it from Bowie happened to be recording an LP around the corner from Queen's studio when he stumbled in and ended up challenging Mercury to a sing-off this could be (laughs) this could be very apocryphal but I'd like to think it's true what transpired thereafter turned into one of Bowie's finest tracks and one of Queen's undying anthems fueled by cocaine wine and a hefty dose of big bruising ego bowie and freddie mercury went toe to toe on this track and somehow both came out as champions that's straight off like vh1 isn't it some kind of kent yeah um but yeah apparently queen were working on a song called feel like but didn't like it Bowie had originally gone to Mountain Studios to sing backing vocals on another Queen song called Cool Cash," but his vocals were removed from the final song because he didn't like it either. <laughs> uh, so, you know, is it ever going to happen for these guys? Are they ever going to come together? Well, they did. And apparently it was kind of like, you know, a, a game of one-upmanship and see who could outdo each other. That section I played there uh, it tells you where we stand on it because I think that, that Bowie closer is just up there with the, show, yeah. the best thing he's ever done. I mean, I, I think it's just absolutely incredible. Um Here's a quote, though, from Never Bitter Brian May, back speaking to (coughs) Mojo Magazine in October 2008. It was hard, because you would four very precocious boys and David, who was precocious enough for all of us. He took over the song lyrically. Looking back, it's a great song, but it should have been mixed differently. Freddie and David had a fierce battle over that. It's a significant song because of David and its lyrical content. Wah, wah, wah. It's amazing. Get over it, Brian May." Um, yeah, so there's all kinds of stuff like, who wrote the riff? Like like their bass player, John Deacon, is that who that is? Or, yeah, yeah, John Deacon, yeah. Apparently they went out for dinner and he came back and he'd forgotten the riff and Roger Taylor remembered it. And it's like, oh, why why wasn't any of this in Bohemian Rhapsody? Uh, it would have been slightly yeah. better. Um, Incredible. I don't think they ever performed it live, even though like they both played live aid like, one after the other and didn't yeah up. probably not there's like a video it- but like the video is like a splice thing and it makes it look like they're performing it live but i don't think it's actually i don't i could be wrong on this but i don't know if they ever performed it live um however an inspirational song to say the least and one man in particular who very much was inspired by it was of course our old friend Vanilla Ice who sampled the iconic bass line for his 1990 single He didn't sample it it's completely different I according baby. to Vanilla Ice <laughs> well, This is the thing he denied the accusation uh, of doing so it said he'd modified it but did not pay any songwriting credit or royalties to Queen and David Bowie a lawsuit resulted in Bowie and all members of Queen teaming up receiving songwriting credit for the sample Vanilla Ice later claimed that he purchased the public. Publishing rights, saying that buying the song made more financial sense than paying out royalties but a Queen spokesperson said that that statement was inaccurate. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm full
2: and shocked. Yeah, when you mention like the mixing there and performance videos and stuff, this is like one of those prime songs uh for the old vocals only treatments on youtube <laughs> like people love doing that particularly with the beach boys but particularly with this song and then all the comments are just like middle-aged bugs being like you can keep your auto-tune and blah 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 this is real vocals yeah <laughs> freddie yeah and it is in far- fairness like remarkable what freddie mercury yeah. could do it's just amazing. technically
1: but it's yeah it's an amazing song i will say that like in closing i'll say that like Uh, I never get sick of hearing it it always puts me in a good mood and that bit in particular the big Bowie ending is just fucking lightning in a bottle so yeah number one all day beautiful I'm not going to argue with that fantastic do you have a number one Craig
2: Um, I didn't really give it too much consideration this would be top five for me I would probably go for like a Craig Staple, like Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel, maybe Don't Give Up. I do love um The Strokes when they teamed up with Regina Spector. You're a big fan um, of that for, one, yes. Yeah, yeah, Modern Girls and Old Fashioned Men. I think it was in my top ten when we talked about The Strokes. Great song.
1: Kind of primer on those. And yeah, I love that one. So, But uh, I like all your picks. Very good. Thanks, man. This episode of No Encore was engineered by our wonderful sonic architect, Adam Shanahan. So, as noted at the top of the show, plenty happening next week on the show or in the week that you listen to this. If you let the weekend go by, Monday, no encore, exclusively for patrons. So, patreoncom noencore if you want to get that bonus episode. Wednesday, track by track, sit down interview with Mihal Quinn, and then next Friday, back at it, another no encore. In between, do check us out. Check out that for those a love album, and we'll be back quite soon. My name is Dave Hanready, His name is Craig Fitzpatrick. This has been No Encore. There will be no Encore. Take care.
0: This show is part of the Stuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the podcast studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Competition never waits. Take your gear on the go with a custom pack built to protect it. Because any place can be an arena. Game on. The Tumi Esports Capsule. Available on Tumi.com and select Tumi Stores.